Okay, hello, welcome, bienvenue, konnichiwa, ni hao, jambo, marhaba. It's time for the Armist Inquisition yet again, episode 248, on Monday, the 12th of September. A little double header for you here. And uh, I'm Amish Phil, and I'm here with Matt Raymer from Content Safe. How are you doing, Matt? I'm doing great, Phil. Good, it's <laughs> nice to see you again. Do you like my, uh, my titles and my graphics? I tell you, I'm getting good at this OBS stuff, you know? It looks fantastic. Yeah, we've, I've only really been taking it seriously, like, since uh, January or February. I uh, upgraded, I invested in and upgraded in a new machine, new PC, mm. because um, hardware was really holding me back with what I wanted to do with OBS, and uh, I just had this shitty, like, $500 laptop, and you could, you could fry an egg on it by the time we'd finished the live stream. It was just melting to pieces, mm-hmm. and it has since died. Uh, so, oh, man. Yeah. so I invested in this like super duper custom built PC and it's just given me this freedom to try and, you know, play with graphics and try and be more creative with the video aspect and take it more seriously because we are audio at the end of the day, but videos there, why not use it if you can, you know? Yeah. It gives you a whole other universe and what you can do. Uh, I, I've started with um, OBS about... Two years ago, I think it was, and uh, I never turned back. Uh, in fact, it's so funny that I'll have uh, like a client uh, contact me, and he gets my video, and is like, "Whoa, where is this a news program? Is this a television show?" <laughs> <laughs> like, no, no, it's just oh yes. It's so liberating, isn't it? Mm-hmm. You know the way. I mean, for there are drawbacks to this sort of. Um, technological expansion that we're living through over the from the the sort of the internet age the silicon age that we're embarking on um but it is there is a certain level of liberation and and a democratization when it comes to content creation isn't there because the barriers to entry have dropped so much in the last 10 to 15 years well you know technology itself um i'm a follower of the the french uh philosopher Jacques Elliou who's from 20th century philosopher talked about uh, technology and it was a bit of a futurologist for his time even though he didn't really like uh, being called a futurologist and uh, his opinion was that technology always led to more problems than it led to solutions but uh, I think that a lot of that was embedded in his deep distrust of uh, centralized authority and uh, and what you get with the internet we have now is much more decentralized, as, at least for now. <laughs> yeah, as long as they allow it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we. Right. 
we hear sort of rumourings about some of the big social media networks wanting sort of inviting regulation. We, you know, we we're not, we can't be held responsible for this. We need the government to come and set the rules for us and sort of regulate us in a certain way. And that makes me pretty nervous. I like the Wild West style internet that we used to have. Absolutely. And I think that the, we need to keep innovating. Uh, there are technologies out there that allow us some degree of freedom from centralized platforms. And those platforms or sometimes they're open source technologies that they're not even, you know, belonging necessarily to anyone in particular. Right, like OBS. Yeah, right, exactly. Uh, that, that type of technology, we need to be familiar with it and we need to utilize it so that we can keep ourselves free from centralized control of the internet yeah i mean i'm i'm not a technological guy so as soon as someone says blockchain and decentralized i'm i just i don't understand it i mean what what examples when you when you say decentralized technologies what sort of examples are we talking about the way that the internet works itself is decentralized so whenever we talk to one another that signal does not pass through one single point of control it can travel through a variety of means to get between me and you. Uh, in internet terminology, it passes through a network of routers. Right. And that is inherently decentralized. Built into the internet technology is decentralization because it was designed, at least this is what they tell us, it was designed to be able to handle a nuclear war. Well, if you had one centralized hub that they had to knock out and then your entire network didn't work anymore, oh, that's not good. That's bad. So one more optimistic view of the future is that there's no way to avoid decentralization because you make your system fragile if you centralize it. Right, so it's almost like an evolution, like an evolutionary mechanism of self-preservation in that respect. Right, and, and you know, some schools of evolutionary theory are not really as centralized or uh, dependent on one point of development. So, for instance, if you take Darwin's view of evolution, it's based on survival of the fittest. But there are other schools of evolution that are communitarian by their very nature, and they say that you can't really have a single survival of the fittest model for how things would develop. It has to be done in community, and communities distributed. Right. Yeah, and there's sort of, um, I guess, um, uh, Dawkins called it the selfish gene in this respect. The uh, um, I hear what you're saying that... Um, the survival of the fittest taken to its to its root, to its core, is almost like a, it is like a selfish act. It's if, if if we if we took that philosophy to its extreme, you would end up with I was gonna say, like a, a group of controllers who control the world and fuck everyone else over. Oh, <laughs> Whoa, how did that happen? And, and you know, that's why some some and I I don't really take a, a side in this discussion, but some would say that Darwin was more justifying his peers and their behavior than he was actually doing scientific research. 
and that there were others like I believe it was Wallace, if I'm not mistaken, that took a more communitarian approach and he would have disagreed with that, you know, centrality of survival of the fittest being the mechanism. But if you're a bunch of, you know, control freaks, then you would say that the world has to work that way. Well, the problem we have is that uh, the way our system is is geared and the way we um, value success, we it seems to be predisposed to people lacking empathy, people who will do anything. They will trod on anyone to cr- to climb up that greasy pole. People who have right. no, you know, uh, it's sort of set to fail in that respect or to, to reward. Um, bad behavior or immoral behavior. And I don't see how we, I don't see how we get out of that without something, a huge change. The the idea of hierarchy, I don't think necessarily has to be uh, malevolent. No, if it's based on competence. Right, right. And I think if you look at the, the people we're talking about, they live in a hierarchy. It's just a smaller subset of humanity. Because otherwise they couldn't do what they're doing. <laughs> they, they have to have a competency hierarchy within their their people. And I, I don't look at those types of people as being a single entity, by the way. I look at them as being a confederation of people who have similar interests or goals. Yes. Uh, yeah, because um, one of the uh, weapons that, that's used against people like me who think in this certain conspiratorial way is the, the uh, they think that we think that there is some sort of grand hierarchy pyramid with the lizard mm-hmm. at the top, you know, and all this, yeah, and this yeah, lot. Yeah. Whereas I, I think we're maybe more on the same page that it, this is more about mutual benefit and uh, the sort of, Mutual interests overlapping between different groups completely can be completely disconnected groups. You know, it could be pharmaceutical industry one day, it could be automotive industry, it could be uh, social media giants. But there are certain areas where mutual interests cross and that benefits Mm -hmm. this this wider group, you know, rather than the sort of the the common trope of a smoke-filled room full of guys making all the decisions for the rest of and us. I do think that there are some smoke filled rooms out there. Oh yeah. But <laughs> like yeah, Davos. Sure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, but we need to remember that these people do, they might work in lockstep to use one of their own terms mm-hmm. uh, on occasion, but I do think they're in competition with one another otherwise. And that's actually to our benefit. That, that they're in competition. It means that there can be factions within them that are more sympathetic to us. Like, I, I think what you see in American politics right now could, I'm not going to say this in absolute terms because they, they didn't give me an invitation to the meetings. Uh, but it, 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 to my observation, it sometimes looks like you have these two factions that want to have the top dog position in that country and they're fighting with one another and they will use the masses however they want. You know, they can take a, a small disenfranchised group of people and t- radicalize them into uh, a, a weapon. Mm. And I think it happens on all sides within that 
group of uh, power brokers. Right, yeah. And it's like I tell people, it really doesn't, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter exactly how it works. What matters is that we be aware that uh, we need to be careful and be self-sufficient and build our own communities. Yeah, there's a saying in the UK, it doesn't matter who you vote for, the government always gets in. <laughs> and I, I wonder how much of it is just a dog and pony show, you know. Uh, I think a lot of it is. I, I, I you know, I, I've seen other governments that clearly the, the person that's at the top is not really the one that's running it. Yeah, you know, going back exhibit A, Brandon. (laughs) Exactly, clearly not him. Uh, Though I do think that they might let a person who's with their group play out uh, according to the script that they write, and they just get corrected and say, "No, no, no, you're too far off. You need to go this way," because you will see people do radical changes. Uh, going back to Eliu again, uh, Eliu said that in the 20th century, that, and even before then, that it, the politicians didn't run anything. He, he was saying this about Europe in 1950. He said, no, politicians don't run anything in Europe. The, the bureaucrats do. Right. And, and they're the constant, you see. We we. we... We forget politicians come and go. They have four-year terms or five-year terms. And uh, they're always, that's their job is to look ahead to the next election cycle and win as many or more votes as they did the previous term. But it's, I mean, uh, people use the term deep state, which again Mm -hmm. is something that's used as a a cudgel to beat people who think outside the box on this. But um, bureaucracy is a better uh, a more sort of tame way of putting it that there are we call it the civil service in the uk people who are like they're lifers they you know mm-hmm. they get in there in the mm-hmm. 20s or 30s and work the way up and they're the kind of the machinery um, the people who keep the machine going regardless of what's happening in the political sphere uh the constant the american constitutional attorney robert barnes calls them the managerial class Wow, yeah, that's a good way of putting yeah. it. And in his, because uh, he's kind of an interesting viewpoint from that guy. Uh, I really like his viewpoint, uh, but, you know, just a, a caveat for anyone listening. I do meta-analysis. I don't really sign on to any particular viewpoint because I, I think it's risky. I, I don't think I have enough... <laughs> Obviously, I don't have a multi-trillion dollar intelligence agency to inform me about anything. So I, I have to go across the spectrum of ideas. But Barnes, Barnes says that uh, for people who want to maintain freedom and liberty in their life, that they have to uh, ally with elite entities to get that. that that's his perspective. And I've met other people who feel the same way that they, they'd say it's, there's no getting rid of that class of people. You have to get, you have to ally with them. Yeah. I mean, they serve an important function Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the running of the state. If you want to live in a state uh, that has certain benefits, whether it be, you know, we all have different philosophies over how big government should be, how much we need, where you've got, you know, the anarchists on, on one end of the spectrum saying everything should be voluntary and we don't need public schools or whatnot or whatever. I mean, the UK is fairly, 
fairly socialist country. We have socialised healthcare and free school. I say free, nothing is free. The government doesn't have any money. But you, you get the picture, you know, you, yeah. you, you're entitled, your kids are entitled to a place at school. I mean, you're in the Philippines. What's it like in the Philippines as far as like... Uh, Everybody has to pay their own way. For everything. For everything. Uh, you know, I, I remember, uh, one, public schooling is not a right here. You have to pay for it. So if you can't afford it, you don't get it. Uh the other aspect about here is I, I remember another expat because I don't normally associate with expats. I, I'm normally around Filipinos. That's by choice. Uh, I, I have this thing about Westerners that uh, that come here. They're usually not the best cut of people. Uh, but this one Westerner that I made friends with about 20 years ago, uh, he, he was quite great guy, great guy, but we were talking about one of the presidents about 10 years ago that uh, she was saying, oh, you know, if if we don't uh, improve the tax collection in the country, we're going to have to start cutting back on government services. And he's like, what do you mean? The lines at the post office are going to get longer? What exactly does that mean? So, in fact, go, to go another step further, if you want a good road in this country, they're all toll roads. So you're not paying for them with taxes. You're paying for them with tolls. So going from where I live to Manila costs you 30 bucks in, in toll fees one way. Right. So really it's a, I often think of it not so much as a, uh, say a, a democracy so much as a uh, so what is it my British friend calls it it's not an oligarchy it's uh, it's 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 kind of an it's kind of an oligarchy of warlords right and and for the most part they don't do they do all their warlordish sort of things that you would imagine but they're cooperative enough that they let roads get built and they all share in the money and only occasionally do they go to war with one another. Wow. And are these sort of, is that like a, a geographical? Um, yes, it right. is. They're all centered around certain provinces and you can identify which, whoever's president, you know that that province is going to bloom wonderfully because they're going to funnel money to their family, friends, and clan members. And that place is going to just explode in productivity for the six years that that guy or woman is in office. Wow. It's a completely different way of life. And uh, mm -hmm. we're, you know, I'm, uh, as bad, I'm as guilty as anyone of being an ignorant Westerner who doesn't travel enough and doesn't pay well, attention to how other people live and stuff. So it's interesting. Even if you came to visit, you wouldn't, uh, you wouldn't, it would look like one country. Yeah. But if you live here long enough and I just happen to be that my wife's family's in the police and the military and we know people at the higher levels of society, mm. uh, you start to understand what's going on that you don't see on the surface. So is it actually... 
officially a democracy? Do you have elections yes. and that? Officially, we have elections and, you know, all of that. It's all of the boxes are checked as far as the democracy is concerned. But in reality, it's not really that much about democracy. They, they buy votes. Uh, there, there are some uh, people who get upset every now and then, like with the previous president and even the current president, uh, that their opponents are very angry because they say it's their turn to be so president. Upset, right. Right. Yeah. So they will, they're going to hype up all the rhetoric against uh, whoever's in office that if it's not them. And I do see a divide. You have to be careful because at some level, every single one of them is a globalist. Uh, but some of them are more local sympathetic. Like the previous president, um, he he's from the southernmost island, and he was correct in that the southernmost island, uh, that's the massive big one, not a tiny little one, uh, that it had been neglected for almost the whole history of the country. And he was the first president to come from that region. So that region got tons and tons and tons of money while it was in office. Right. And the ones who are really have a lot of foreign assets, which are mostly the what you would call from the Chinoy class, the Chinese Filipino class, those guys, um, they have a lot of global interests. So they're more interested in, you know, things going on outside. They they at least make some. They're a bit they're a lot more sympathetic to globalizing the country and listening to the WHO or listening to the UN than the previous president was, but it really does come down to money. So whenever the recent event that maybe some people have encountered this recent event in the last few years where people were restricted in movement and all of that, uh, all of that type of thing, he would have at least hypothetically opposed at the beginning of his uh, term. But whenever the money started to flow in, uh, he was like completely on board with the whole idea. So. That was, um, well, a couple of questions to raise from that. Do I, I, does most of the foreign investment come from China and is the Philippines falling under the sphere of like the Belt and Road Initiative? Uh, you would have to say we're under the Belt and Road Initiative, but we can be a problematic country. Uh, I will say one thing that I'm very proud of my Filipino friends is that they are very nationalistic and the leadership is very treacherous with foreign entities. So they don't like having strings attached. Right. So, I mean, they, generally, it's either IMF loans with strings yeah, oh, or, yes. it's, or it's Chinese Belt and Road loans with strings. Oh. But take for Ferdinand Marcos, for instance. Uh, one of the reasons that, this is my opinion, but I think I could back it up with evidence. Uh, one of the reasons he left was because he reneged on all the loans. Wow. So was that like yeah. a default? Yeah, he defaulted. Wow. And they, they, they punished him. They took him out of office. They put someone more sympathetic to the IMF in office. And uh, 
Well, that, but they put him in office to begin with. How did that sort of play out on the ground? Because it's, you know, again, in Western Europe, it's unheard of for a country to go into default. We've heard, you know, Greece came close recently and Italy always seems to be on a knife edge. What was it like there living through it? Was it a big deal? 20, 20 years being kicked in the teeth. Really? They punish you for it. And what happened during that time was everybody went abroad. Uh, the, the biggest earner for the government is foreign workers, not really? taxes. So I think our GDP is like 70, 80% remittances. Wow. Which the UN has been warning them for decades that they need to increase tax collection and pull back on uh, over re these remittance uh, dependency. Yeah. But I don't know about now, uh, but when, say 20 years ago, there were 100,000 new uh, foreign workers per month. And where, where are they coming from? Oh, they just come from the, the well, this is like going out, okay, not not coming in. Oh, so, right, going out. Yeah, so it, you've, you've got lots of Filipinos there in Britain. Yeah, yeah, like a lot <laughs> of nurses, healthcare industry. It's, uh, it's kind of uh, it's something I don't agree with. We, um, it's kind of fucked up, really. Rather than What's taking, it? like, a, an 18-year-old boy, a lad or girl, and training them to be a nurse or a doctor and investing mm -hmm. in them and mm -hmm. sending them through university and higher education, and then, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an expensive process to take an 18-year-old chap and, and mould him into a doctor. And so rather than doing that... We go to the Far East, to the Philippines, to Thailand, to India. We let them spend all the money training their guys and girls, and then we poach them for the National Health Service. Mm -hmm. It's called a brain drain. And yes. It's bad. it's bad for the Philippines, just as it's bad for Britain. Yeah, it's short. It's so short-termism. Well, my real objection, I, I mean, of course, I, I came from another country and I came here. Of course, though, I, I live off Western economies. That's... I don't live off the local economy. Uh, the The thing I object to is the the lack of uh, like the nurses that that are trained here aren't here, so the locals don't benefit from that training. You might benefit in terms of that person goes abroad, they send back money, but that hasn't been all wonderful because a lot of these people leave families behind and there's a lot of resentment amongst children of these foreign workers that their parents were never around. Really? Like this is an yeah. angle we never hear about. We don't think about the people get, yeah. that get left behind. Yeah. I mean, do, yeah. do most people return? Do they do, they do like five-year stints oh. to make a big chunk of money and then come back? Usually it's 20-year stints or more. And... Uh, I think I don't know what the exact ratio of people who stay abroad and people who come back is, but I do know that for American, for, for people who went to the U.S., it's fairly high that they would go until they're 65 and they would collect their, their Social Security money and they come back to retire here. Yeah. Yeah. Because the cost of living is lower. Yeah, I can imagine. I mean, the other issue we have... Um, to sort of support this way of operating in the West is mm -hmm. our 
below replacement birth rate. We, we're not having enough babies over here in the West. Mm-hmm. And so that's sometimes mm-hmm. used as, I'm not saying I condone this, but that's sometimes used as an excuse that we need lots of immigration to keep our numbers up and pay our pensions because, you know, the state pension is, is a joke here. You, you People think they're putting money away for the future and it's not. It's your kids and your grandkids who are going to be paying your pension, you know. Right, right, right. So, I, yeah, I don't, myself, I don't rely on uh, the Social Security money that they promised me. I, I wrote that off years ago. <laughs> yeah, it's a promise, it, isn't it? Yeah, it's a promise. But my dad was, uh, I guess you could say, old school conspiracy theorist. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he was, uh, he died about 10 years ago, but uh, he was up there. I was the last kid in the family so i i grew up you know him telling me like the bankers they control the world wow uh, yeah yeah Uh, this was before you know any of this stuff i would say that was 1984 1985 that he was telling me this stuff and i was a geeky little kid uh computers physics chemistry and i was like Dad, I, I don't think that's possible. His <laughs> <laughs> ego, son, read this. It gives you a copy of Behold a Pale Horse or something. <laughs> well, th- at that time, you know, uh, Cooper hadn't hadn't written yet. No, eight, right, 84. Right. Christ. He was reading uh, anti-establishment newspapers uh, in the 1980s. And just a guy in the Midwest didn't finish high school, you know, my my dad was a pretty bright guy. He he was uh, self taught, and uh, my whole family has a a vein of uh, you know just figuring stuff out. My grandfather was uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term. It may be a uniquely American term, uh, a Sawyer, like Tom Sawyer. Yeah, exactly, exactly like Tom Sawyer. A Sawyer was a person whose job was to, to find trees and then figure out what boards could be cut out of the trees. Right. Dimensionally, mm-hmm. what size boards? Right. Cracky. Right. So he would go and buy up, like, logs from people's uh, forests, bring them back to the sawmill, and then flip it, right? Make money off finding the logs for the sawmill. And he also had great opportunities to buy land. So if he found a nice piece of land, he would buy it. And I, that's why I ended up growing up on a farm, because it was an inheritance for my grandfather. Wow. So did you have like a, was it like a, a working farm that, you know, you grew, or was it just, um, I'll it say was a like a hobby farm. <laughs> it was a hobby, a hobby farm. farm. Yeah, because my dad had a full-time job. He worked as, uh, in management for a heavy equipment company. Uh, which again, he's self-taught. He, he went in as a diesel mechanic and he, after a few years, he got promoted up into the management class of the company. And he just did, you know, like before I was born, they would do dairy cows and beef cows and, uh, pigs. But after I was born, they cut back and they did only beef cows. Uh, they raised tobacco and they did you know, your typical chickens. I think we had some turkeys for a while and uh, we were self-sufficient. My mom would raise this garden and we had what we called a root cellar. And in the root cellar were all of these canned vegetables. 
so whenever there was this a blizzard that came through in 1975, I think it was, it was a humongous blizzard in the Midwest. And I kid you not, the, the snow drifts were at the tops of the telephone poles. Bloody hell. Yeah. And we didn't have a worry in the world. We had a wood stove. We had food in the root cellar. Uh, we had chickens up in the barn, fresh eggs. We, we were like, okay, well, it's going to take two weeks for the roads to be cleared, but uh, we won't go hungry. This is so alien to us now. Uh, this, these are things and skills that we've lost and uh, say it often on our podcast, but our society is, is sort of on a knife edge. It's hang, hanging on a thread. And, uh, you know, if you store up as some canned food and water and whatnot, you get called a prepper and a bit of a lunatic because you think, but I mean, it's just so, it's so basic. Like you got to be able That's to meet right. your needs. That's right. You know, for me, uh, until I started forming companies, I was pretty much freelance and I learned pretty quick, you know, like, man, you better buy some groceries, keep a couple months of groceries because you don't know when you're going to get paid. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, necessity, you see, necessity is the mother of invention. And, uh, and we, it's not we... prepping. I mean, it is <laughs> prepping in a sense, but it's not prepping in this in for doomsday. It's just practical prepping i want to be able to eat while the paychecks are coming to arrive yeah yeah i mean this is becoming more of a real consideration because they're talking about energy blackouts and stuff in europe now with the whole gas oil situation and there is a guy i follow uh in sweden uh he has a uh, channel called sanity for sweden uh and he was just commenting because he lives out in the backwoods of sweden and he was saying that his neighbor was now selling truckloads of firewood to people in Stockholm. Yeah. Because they're, they're anticipating blackouts. Do you know, it's so ironic, isn't it? Because uh, a lot of the situation we're in is being pushed by this green agenda, the, the decarbonization agenda 2030 mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. net, net zero by 2050 and whatnot. And um, I th I'm, I've followed Jordan Peterson's point of view in this regard that if you want to limit carbon emissions, you need to make people wealthier. You know, yes. when, when people don't have gas to heat their homes or food, they will burn anything, anything yeah. to keep warm. And I think he, he absolutely nails it. You know, investment in, in the developing world to, to help people go from, from burning wood to burning coal to burning gas and working the way up like that. You know, it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs when it comes to energy. You know, it's a luxury to give a shit mm -hmm. about the environment. We all do. We all think we all want a nice planet to live on. But when it comes to the crunch and you've no heat and it's winter, those concerns have to go to, on the back burner. No right. pun intended, because, right. you know, survival is, 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 is at the top of the pyramid, you know. Yeah. And all of these, at least for a country like Sweden, they, strangely enough, had uh, programs for training people to survive invasion by the Soviets. And those programs are still active. Wow. <laughs> so they, they actually had government subsidized prepping. Mm. Like base, sort of basic survival skills and. Oh, yeah, counter, you know, counter military stuff, stocking up foods, you know. But, you know, I, I've actually got this kind of 
I guess, overly idealistic view of the Swedes. I, I was able to go there a few years ago to teach a class. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I was just so impressed at, at Swedish society. Uh, just amazing and to talk to them, uh, s- such professional people. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't think that I've ran across uh, many places like that. I just felt at home whenever I was there. I mean, even here, even though I have family and friends here, I felt more at home in Sweden than I did here. It's strange. It's really strange. Wow. It's funny. I just saw an article this morning. Um, I only saw, saw the headline, but um, the, uh, the headline was saying that uh, Sweden is, is at risk of a far-right political party gaining power. Not, not really. Uh, th- there's a movement there but it's only going to get about 20 to 30% of the vote. They may be able to get a seat in their parliament, but they're not going to be taking over. And, you know, I, I, I actually, whenever I went there, I worked for the Swedish government for a week and uh, they were all like, they thought maybe I was a plant or something because (laughs) it's, it's weird because the guy, you know, my, my handler, whenever the last day he said, I just want you to know we love the EU and we're very grateful. I'm like, why in the world are you saying this to me? <laughs> really? Yeah. They really. thought you were you, they thought you were a plant from Brussels. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and it's weird. Every place in Europe that I went to for that company, it was oh, excuse me, that was Canada. That there was the I I did a thing for the UN in Canada, and the, my handler there was like. You know, we we really love the United Nations, and uh, <laughs> I just I guess I have that vibe. Yeah, that yeah, it's like, bro, chill. I'm just subcontracting here. Leave me alone. Let's <laughs> see to make a few quid. <laughs> Gosh, exactly, exactly. But well, that, let me that, tell you what. Mm. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that throws a a light on the fact that they've probably experienced this before. They've probably experienced people coming in. Uh, from the UN, whatever organization, and they've been told by by the managerial class, look, this guy's coming, make a good impression, make sure the office is tidy and all this lot, and make sure you, you praise the EU or the UN or whatnot. <laughs> yeah, it, it is bizarre. It's really bizarre. It's going back uh, to, to Sweden. Sorry, Matt. Sorry, go on. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, um, one of the talking points that we hear in the UK about Sweden is the um, the immigration from the Middle East seems to have gone really yes. high. And I'm wondering if this uptick in what they're, they're calling far-right political is, a, is a reaction. directly to- correlated. Directly correlated. Uh, and, you know, I have an opinion about that. I don't have a problem with migrants. Um, I, I do think that there are two problems fundamentally, though. Uh, one is if you're going to have uh, migrants, you need they need to observe the laws and, cu- and culture of the people of the of the people they're coming to. Right. So if you're going to migrate to Britain, you need to respect British laws. And you need to respect British culture. That seems like a no brainer to me. Mm-hmm. And what has caused all of this friction is the refusal to enforce Swedish law on some of these migrants. Right. That's why people, because the Swedes are very obedient people. They, they love their country. They obey their laws. They pay their taxes and they get, you know, 
millions of people coming in that often I wouldn't put a ratio on this, but it's noticeable to them. I'm not saying that every single migrant disobeys. No, of course not. Right. It's just enough that it pisses people off. Well, it would be relatively easy, I would think, for a state that's been enforcing its own laws and its own people for centuries to do the same for migrants. Yeah. And this is where the, the discontent comes from. And it's, so it almost it, seems to me to be engineered discontent. Well, yeah, it, it could be engineered. It could be just political opportunism. That, or, um, or incompetence. Uh, well, there's a, oh, incompetence is always in the mix when it comes to government and the state. Christ. But whenever, I, you know, for me, my, my saying recently is whether it's instigated, whether it's opportunism or whether it's incompetence, it doesn't really matter because it's the same outcome. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And uh, I think people have more sympathy when they see uh, migration being used for the for the benefit of the whole. So, like, if you have a particular skill shortage, maybe right. we, we don't have enough software engineers. We need X amount of software engineers in the economy, and we just don't have them. So, and it's going to take too long to train them. See, that's why people try to say it's racism or, or xenophobia. I really don't think that that's the case. I think that it's uh, this lack of enforcement of law that causes it. And if you wanted to have this all go away in, in a couple years, it would all go away. Just enforce your laws. Don't treat the migrant any differently than you would a native. Yeah. Make them go through a program on behavior. You know, like this is what we expect. If you're going to stay, you know, you got to follow the rules. And you see what I mean, that we, we're coming from a, an EU perspective. We're, we've left the EU now, but before that it was open door essentially to the EU. Mm-hmm. And so because this migration issue has been bubbling up in the UK, because it puts pressure on public services and school places and whatnot, um, we were having to try and, what we were having to do is reject immigration applications from outside of the EU because we have this open door policy within the EU. And it right. was almost racist. We were mm-hmm. rejecting doctors from India, nurses from Thailand, scientists from Africa, anywhere, like, you know, because we had to let Polish joiners and, uh, you know, Bulgarian bricklayers in. Right. It's just, uh, it was, it was just, uh, it made no sense whatsoever. Um, I, I was a Brexiteer. I voted for Brexit. And it was a tough decision because, you know, there were all these sort of doomsday predictions about the economic fallout that would occur. And, mm. um, I was I was still thinking about it. I was still running running it through my head as I went into the ballot box. I knew what the right decision was, um, but I knew that there would be pain associated with it. Right. Um, and it's still it's still a question that's bubbling up. There's still people who want to to go back. They want to change and and re-enter the EU. But and, what are you going to go back to? Because it it really does look like the EU is falling apart. Yeah, you've got uh, the the Italians. Give it another year. They've got this new prime minister coming in that looks like she's going to go do what Salvini did. 
and maybe even stronger than Salvini because, as we say, the recent events of the last three years have made the Italians even more angry at their central government. In, in, what, what, in what respect? What was it about well, the... They, uh, were, they were ground zero for lockdowns. Right, yeah, they were the, the sort of test case in Europe. Yeah, yeah, and it really pissed off the Italians. They're very angry. It was strange how that all happened in Northern Europe, in Northern Italy, sorry. Well, you know, uh, one, one theory I heard about that, which I don't even know what I think about, about this impossible interpretation, that uh, that was the garment center for Italy, right? Yeah, I've heard this. And, yeah. and you, had, you had all of these people growing ill in a particular area that was full of Chinese influence. And that, that's really strange. That, that's, that's very strange. But that's why some people like the terrain theory guys would say, no, it's be, it just shows you that uh, the toxins of the garment industry makes people sick. <laughs> yeah. I've, yeah. I've not gone down the rabbit hole on terrain theory. I, you know, my, my instinct from what I do know about the, the idea is that I'm not buying it. But I'm not an expert on anything. And, uh, well, I would say it's probably a combination of what we would traditionally call germ theory. And there are aspects of terrain theory that make sense. Uh, mm. Like, for instance, uh, polio. Uh, you know, the poster boy for polio in the United States was uh, FDR, the president, you know, Roosevelt. Mm. But you realize he didn't have polio. That was a thing, was it? Was that was that was a PR thing that he had polio? Yeah, yeah, they had polio. He didn't have polio. You can check. What happened was he went swimming in a lake or a stream that had toxic effluent in it, and he developed a neurosis. Uh, you know, not neurosis, but uh, uh, it damaged his nervous system. That's what made him paralyzed. Not, not polio. Wow. You know, it just makes you wonder how much of history is a lie. I mean, we did an hour on this last night, and uh, you just don't know what to believe. No, you, you don't. Uh, like, for me, I'm, cur I, I'm curious about the idea of ancient civilizations. I haven't made a commitment on any of them yet. Uh, what, what I told a, an acquaintance of mine I recently met that was very strong on Tartaria, mudbloods, and what I told her was, I'm more interested in collecting the data that people claim supports the idea and then validating that data. Because I think that there probably were ancient civilizations before ours that we don't even know. We just don't even know who built whatever they built. For instance, uh, in Turkey, Gobegli uh, Tepe. Yeah. I think, yeah. I mean, who built that? And uh, it's not the only one. They keep finding them. There's those Karahan Tepe. Uh, the, the Turkish authorities came out a few months ago and said, there's dozens of these sites. <laughs> they keep popping up and they're buried. Right. And uh, I think they've excavated right. maybe 5 or 10% of Gebekli Tepe right. in the last right. two decades. You know, it's um, it really is a mystery. I mean, I... I'm a big fan of like Graham Hancock and his books and yes. uh, other authors in that sort of area. So I'm very sympathetic to the sort of lost civilization hypothesis. And it, it kind of makes sense when you think how long uh, modern humans have been around for. You know, it keeps getting pegged back, but we're, we're, That's right. we're talking 300,000 years at a minimum now. And you well, think, well, and we, all, we only got writing from cuneiform in Sumer. 
3000 BC? What were we and, doing? Well, you know, if you, if you look at, I mean, human remains are hard to preserve. Uh, I would be suspicious if we haven't been around longer than that. We are. Uh, uh, sorry, go on. Yeah. Now, I, I think that we may, we may have been around a lot longer than that. You want to, uh, and, we, did, we did a show with Mario Bildreps. Who's, uh, I don't know that. No, well, it, it was a bit of a score for us because I don't think, I think we might have been the first podcast he did. Hmm. And uh, it's been on Grey America. Darren and Graham, well, I sent Graham the, the link because I'm a huge oh, cool. Grey America fan. I listen to him all yeah, the time. Yeah, I just talked to him the other day. Oh, cool. Yeah. And uh, they've been on our show. And uh, so I know what they like. I know the subjects they cover. And I sent Graham a message with a link to this guy and said, you've got to check this out. This is right up your alley when it comes to lost civilization. And and uh, he's he's been doing, like you mentioned about meta-analysis, he's been looking at ancient sites and um, correlating their alignments to positions of the North Pole and a migration mm-hmm. of the North Pole. And it's, it's, there's so much detail in it, and uh, it's maths at the end of the day. The numbers don't lie, as Randall Carlson says. And he's the same. He's like, you know, uh, which site did he say? I can't remember which site he mentioned, but he said this was built 100,000 years ago. <laughs> I'm like, mm-hmm. whoa, you're blowing my mind, man. It's like, have you, have you heard about the uh, axis flip uh, hypothesis? Um, this isn't Charles Hapgood, is it? Not the crustal displacement theory. This is a, well, is, is this an electromagnetic pole flip? It's, 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 no, it's, it's actually a physical pole oh, shift. Shit. And, and it's, it's not really Hancock's theory because no. Hancock's theory had a lot of flaws with it. Uh, and I think his key was crustal displacement. And that's not part of the modern approach to, to the pole flipping. Uh, it's an interaction between the magnetic pole and the external galactic superwave, which is part of it. Uh, and it does appear that there is evidence that the physical poles have been at different places at different times in the past. Yeah. Yeah, that's what Mario's saying, but sort of not flipping into another hemisphere. He's, he's, he's showing a migration like the North Pole was in Greenland. Uh, well, you know, 100,000 years ago. Whatever. Of course, you know, like I said, I'm not really taking any one position. I'm no. just observing what people, how they're interpreting it. And uh, there's a fellow by the name of Ben Davidson. Have you heard of him? Ben Davidson? No, I don't think I have. You might check his channel out on YouTube. It's called Suspicious Observers. Oh, gosh, yes. Yes, I know. The Solar Flare guy. Yeah, it, he has in the last four years been advocating a a model of uh, an actual flip, and it looks like, at least for me, because I, I got one of my degrees in physics, and it looks to me that he has it's some legitimacy in what he's saying. Uh, the problem with flipping in the past was you would look at how we imagined the core and the mantle being formed. And we would say, no, 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 it's not really possible. There's no way for you to get a radical flip in a short period of time. Uh, but recent uh, evidence of how the core and the mantle are structured lends itself to a flip. So we would think of the core and the mantle as being somehow homogenous, and it's not. 
it's not homogenous. So now we have a mechanism by which you could actually have some sort of electromagnetic a force on the earth that would cause it to flip 90 degrees. 90 degrees. So not a whole flip. Wow. Yeah. And which would produce a massive tsunami. <laughs> right? I mean, what, what's and the scale? What's the scale, time scale of the flip? Is he, is 12, he reckon? 12,000 years. 12,000 years. And we're at the edge. According to his calculations, we're at the edge of that flip. Wow. You know, I wonder if this plays into the grand, the long count, the, the uh, procession of the equinox, 25,000 year cycle, you know. Well, he looks at well-established in... Uh, paleontology there's like a series of six or eight major catastrophes global scale catastrophes and he maps them out and they fall like lockstep 12,000 24,000 36,000 48,000 and they might be off a thousand years here or there but he said you know what these numbers you can't really say for sure anyway and uh, when was the Younger Dryas, the last massive climate 12, event? 12,000 years ago. 12,000 years ago, yeah. That's, uh, that's, that's a scary thought. Yeah. <laughs> we better well, get prepping. No. <laughs> well, you know, if it's true, uh, I, there are a few safe zones in the world. But oh. uh, if, you're, if you're in a low-lying area, man, you're fish food. Yeah, you're fish food. Do you know, I've got a soft spot for these uh, terrible disaster movies that came out in the 2000s, you know, like, um, oh, what is it called? Deep Impact and uh, right. The Day After mm -hmm. Tomorrow and 2012 and whatnot. I don't know why. There's something that I enjoy about civilization getting destroyed. I must be a, well, a closet nihilist. <laughs> what, what, what was the one about uh, with Aerosmith in it? Uh, that, oh. uh, Smith. Yeah, the Bruce 1990s? Willis one. Uh, Armag Armageddon. Yeah, Armageddon, right. right, I, th right, I right. think that was late 90s. I think so. Yeah, Is that about 99? Yeah. yeah. I think it was 98, 99, something like that. Yeah, yeah Cotton Meteor's going to hit Earth. We need to send the oil company up there <laughs> to save us. The only ones who know how to save us. Yeah. It's so preposterous. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. That's Hollywood for you, preposterous. Oh, yeah. well, I mean, it yeah. just seems to be getting more and more ridiculous, Hollywood. I'm I'm pretty much disconnected. I don't really watch any TV, and there's rarely a film that comes out that I am attracted to, you know. Uh, I'm the same. Uh, you know, in fact, I had my first taste of this when I first moved here in the 90s, uh, and I took four years off from media because this was, like, at the very beginning of the Internet, okay? Right. So we, from like 96 until 99, I didn't have a television. And it were the happiest days of my life. <laughs> well, it was interesting because I had a computer and I had limited access to the Internet, but I had a computer so I could I could play games. But and in fact, you know, we didn't really get into YouTube until the late 2000s uh, because I was more like I started out listening to audio stuff. Yeah. And uh, then I said, nah, you know, if I get into video, I'll, I'll never leave. I'll be sucked in. And sure enough, I'm sucked in. I haven't left since. <laughs> There's just so much great stuff on, on these media, on these video platforms uh, that knocks spots off 
what is being pumped out by Disney. Like I was telling my co-host Ben, this idiot who usually sits next to me, he's watching She-Hulk. Marvel's oh, no. She-Hulk. I mean, I, I watched heard it was horrible. I I'm not going to waste any time on it. But the, the funny thing is, is they they released some viewing figures and uh, the premiere of She-Hulk. Um, I think 1.8 million people watched it. And there's a YouTuber called the Critical Drinker. He's Scottish. I've heard and, of him. Yeah, he's a, he's, he's a reviewer and he just slams shit that comes out of Disney and whatnot. And his video on how to fix She-Hulk had nearly twice as many views as the She-Hulk premiere did. And I'm like, that just says it all to me. It does. It it's, does, absolutely. Whenever you can listen to a political commentator and he gets more views in a day or in an hour than CNN gets all day, you know that traditional media is dead. And I've been saying, you know, it's funny. Whenever I was, before I got into YouTube, I was listening to this uh, podcast in the late 2000s and they interviewed this guy and he was talking about the future of media. And he said, in just a few years, I can tell you what's coming and it's going to just absolutely destroy corporate media. It's going to obliterate it. And that's what we're experiencing now is the death of corporate media. Uh, I think corporate media is going to come back, uh, not as centralized nighttime broadcasts, though. I think that what's forming up is uh, basically freelance uh, media personalities that get put on contract to speak according to a certain script. Wow. Yeah, because yeah. it's interesting. We've had this fragmentation with the, the streaming services where, where Netflix have, had been dominant. They had a dominant position for a number of years, and then all of yeah. a sudden we get Paramount+. Plus. And that's... And I think that's temporary. I don't think that you're going to see these uh, big, massive companies are going to be able to survive. What you're going to see is people investing in independent creators under contract to produce different types of material. And th that's why, you know, we need to be wary. If you're one of these people who is worried about media manipulation of, of society, it's not over. It's, it's going to be distributed just like, we're hoping to be distributed to maintain some sense of freedom. They're going to distribute to maintain some sense of control. Yeah. And influence. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you've just got to judge each, you know, in that scenario, you've got to judge each piece of content or each creator by its own merits. And uh, I'd rather have that than I would corporate controlled media. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because, we, well, I don't, I don't really want to get into all the woke stuff, but but it, it becomes so politically motivated as well, and uh, the content suffers for it. Like I'm, I'm watching this Rings of pa Prime, sorry, Ring of Power thing. This uh, oh, yeah. adaption. How, how's that going? It's fucking terrible, man. It's <laughs> terrible. But it's so, it's almost so bad. It's funny. And so I'm sort of gritting my teeth. I think I'm probably done with it. I've watched three, and it's like. No, no more, no more. <laughs> were, were you ever uh, a Star Trek person? Yes. What have they have done you, to it? Have you seen, yeah, the, the, the corporate stuff is horrible. Uh, but have you seen the independent uh, creator stuff that have made old school Star Trek? Stuff? Do you know what? I haven't. You should look. Some of it is okay. Some of it's okay. They're trying to capture the original TV show feeling. 
Yeah, the the ethos. Because I mean, my my other half, she watched uh, Star Trek Discovery, and I was just in the same room, just looking over my book every now and again. I was like, "This is not Star Trek." Like oh, swearing, just... bad language, yeah. and violence, yeah. and. Oh. I made it through the first season of Discovery before I said, wow, this is terrible. Uh, I'm not going to watch anymore. It's no different from any other space soap opera now. It's it's missing that. So, the, you know, the Star Trek TNG and whatnot. You want a good space opera? Mm. The Expanse. Oh, right. Well, that, that is premium stuff. That is really, really, really good stuff. Yeah. Um, my my son, <clears throat> he's getting a a degree in computer engineering. Excuse me, in com, com, com chemical engineering. Mm-hmm. And as a hobby, he's picked up developing role playing games. So he like cooperates with people and builds these gaming systems with all the rules and all the mythology and oh, wow. all this stuff. It's like really super complicated. I mean, I grew up playing Dungeons and Dragons, but he's doing stuff that's next level sort of stuff. Wow. Yeah. And he introduced me to The Expanse and he's like, Dad, you're going to love this. This is fantastic. He said the way they did the show was they had a role playing game and they actually kept a recording of the game and how the game played out. And they wrote scripts for books and TV off of the game they played. Wow. Yeah, totally cool. Totally cool. And a very good story. Uh, yeah, people want people want depth in the storytelling, and, and this is why the the Disneys and whatnot, it's, it's just so shallow and superficial, mm-hmm. and uh, it's, well, see, it's, it's, it's dumbed down in some sense. It, this is a gritty, mostly realistic take on future space travel. Right. It's uh, at least... I won't give away too much. I don't want to be a spoiler, but at least whenever you get in the first season, uh, you've got a mystery that needs to be solved, which is always the way it goes, right? Opening season, you've got a mystery that needs to be solved, but you've also got to learn all these different players on earth, Mars and the belt, the asteroid belt. Yes, because the asteroid belt is populated with people. They call belters. Oh, wow. Yeah, they mine the belt and they get screwed by Mars and Earth. Mars declared independence from Earth. (laughs) Wow. And it's really a fascinating story. I think the way that they ended the TV show to me was a little bit not too realistic, but the rest of the show was perfect. It was beautiful. Yeah, I love uh, shows that have this sort of political machination, Machiavellian characters. Uh, that's why I, I loved Game of Thrones when it first came out. And those first sort of four seasons, there was so mm-hmm. much depth in the storytelling and the, and the writing and the characters and the character development. It was really, it was a masterpiece. And then yes. uh, it just fell to pieces when they, when they got ahead of the books and they didn't have My- the source material to draw on. My kids were the ones that were obsessed with Game of Thrones. Uh, and they said, Dad, you should watch this. You're like, ah, no, I'm not, I don't want to watch that. <laughs> so I never really got into it. What I got into was Babylon 5 back in the 90s. Right. Did you ever watch No, Babylon I never 5? did. It passed me by on that one. This is the greatest space opera ever made. Wow. That's a hell of now a statement. It's, it's cheesy. 
because it has very little CGI in it. Everybody's in latex suits. But in terms of just uh, Straczynski was the name of the writer. In terms of just the story and the intricacy, uh, I just can't. It's be- the best one ever. I think the only one that would have competed with it if it had lasted would have been um, Firefly. Firefly. Oh, Firefly. Firefly. Yeah. Uh, Josh Whedon. Right, because Firefly had the potential of being the best space <sighs> opera ever. Yeah, and it got cancelled after two seasons or something, didn't it? There's I always- think it was... I think it was touching too close to the to the third rail. Really? Oh, that's intrigued yeah. me even more. I want to go back and watch it now. Watch it and think about, uh, and watch the movie that closed it. I think uh, I've seen the movie. Yeah, but watch it. Serenity? Think about Serenity, right. Uh, watch the TV show, then watch the movie and think about the last three years of your life. Oh, my gosh. Right. Well, <laughs> hey man, I didn't think we were going to be talking sci-fi tonight. We could go on for like another three hours just talking about. We didn't even oh, have... about Battlestar Galactica, man. <laughs> but we I... haven't we haven't even talked about content save. No, and we've done over I... an hour. Tell us about I... content save. Well, content save is my Sistine Chapel. I I've been developing software since I was thirteen years old, and I'm fifty-two, going on fifty-three. Uh, content safe is my contribution to the content creation world. Uh, we are a automated system for distributing video and audio. Uh, we deal with the new platforms like BitChute and Odyssey and Rumble, though we are going to be writing things for the more mainstream platforms as well, like Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we also do distribution on audio to using. Right, presently, we use Buzzsprout. I don't know if you know Buzzsprout. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, it's a good tool for distributing video. Um, we are here to get people out there to these new audiences, as well as protect people from censorship. So the way our system works is it we will monitor automatically uh, a channel. And whenever a new video is published, we download it and then we automatically upload it to the other platforms. That's in the nutshell what yeah. content, content safe is. But we're also a consultation company. We work with content creators to help them monetize their channels as well as deal with censorship and other technological issues they might have. And don't, don't you also host the content as well? We can, you can. Uh, though, we, w- though we're not a video platform. Uh, if we're going to host video, what we're going to encourage people to host it on is Interplanetary File System, which is an open source content distribution network. Uh, it's right now the only community-owned content distribution service. So no, oh. one, no one entity owns IPFS. It's owned by the world. Amazing. Well, we have loads of YouTubers and uh, podcasters who listen to us, so it might be something to bear bear in mind. You know, if you're making videos that are controversial, maybe like us, you've had the old YouTube strike here and there, and you're concerned about, you know, being able to keep doing what you're doing, it's uh, something to, to bear in mind to consider looking into. 
Um, well, I'll put the website in the show notes if anyone wants to follow up on that. It's also a time saver because a lot of people would be on BitChute, but they don't want to deal with the problems of uploading to BitChute. Yeah. Yeah, and multiple platforms because, you know, you want to get your stuff, you know, to as many eyes, eyeballs and ears as you can. And uh, it's it's labor intensive and it's just a drag as well, manually uploading to all these different sites. It's like I have Odyssey and I, I think I'm like three months behind on uploading to Odyssey because it's just another job and it's boring and I, I tend yeah. to forget, you know. Well, one of my new clients just handed me 500 videos to upload to BitChute. Wow, 500. Yeah, and the problem with BitChute, I, I love them. They're, they're the pioneer in the new platforms, but they, they have a lot of problems with their software. And they have a lot of problems with keeping enough disk space to store all their videos. Right. Uh, so uh, uploading to them, I've had many a client say, I, "I almost I dropped BitChute because I just got frustrated with how difficult it was to upload to." Yep, you'd be halfway through, the bar is going across, and then all of a sudden you're back to square one, and you're having to reset right. it all again. That's before you know, regardless of having to copy and paste your descriptions and your titles and your thumbnails right. and all the rest of it yeah i remember yeah it is it's they've got some some gremlins haven't they to to figure out yeah. but the, it, it, I, I think it's a great platform really it gets it gets given it a hard time and you know we get some we've had some pretty horrific comments on our videos like because they don't censor anything including comments right. and so you know that attracts people who will write really horrible things about things. people or different groups of people. and right. you know, uh, But that's, yeah, you've got to take I the did. rough with the smooth, man. If you want freedom, yeah. you've, got to, you've got to be able to take it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I don't put much weight on comments. Uh, <laughs> though it is nice if they're complimentary. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but real quick, Battlestar Galactica. Mm. I've watched both the original Battlestar Galactica in the 1980s and the more recent one in the 2000s. Uh, the old one was so campy. It was crazy. Uh, I, but, you know, I was a kid. I loved it whenever I was a kid. I, I look back at it now and I go, oh, really? I watched that? Uh, Space Cowboys. You know that that was based on Bonanza, the, the cowboy show? Bonanza? No, I didn't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was Space Bonanza because oh. Adama in the original Battlestar Galactica was also the star of the show Bonanza. Wow. Yeah. Right. yeah. So people call it Space Bonanza. <laughs> the, the 2000s version was slick. Yeah. Uh, I know that myself, I got a little frustrated with it. Because at that time, I was getting too much terror this, terror that. I felt terrored out. And whenever I st started seeing them portray this as acts of terrorism with the humans and the Cylons, I'm like, oh, really? Are we going to have to watch another TV show like 24 now? Is that, is that what we're going to want? What we're going to be forced to watch here? So I kind of gave up on the show after that. Uh but I do know that the ending was pretty intriguing, and I, I think it was a brilliant retelling of the story. 
Yeah, there was a deeper layer of sort of esotericism going on, mm-hmm. uh, running through the show, which you you know don't really see in sci-fi. Or I haven't seen much of in sci-fi. You know, the whole sort of the zodiac. It was almost like a twelve tribes of Israel kind of theme right. going through. It was incredibly creative. What the way they did it. Well, and if you think about even the original, uh, had an aspect of it where humans were. Earth was Battlestar Galactica's ultimate destination and that we are the children of the people who left, right? Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of the same thing, but you got that layer of the AI and the Cylon in there that they're still watching us. Yeah, yeah. They brought it into the modern age. And then there's also the aspect that really the difference between the AI and the human was blurred and that there we were one and the same. Well, yeah, there's that uncanny valley, this sort of thing that we're going to witness probably over the next decade or two, this sort of blurring of the lines between reality and, and virtual reality. It's, it's a very strange world we're going into for, you know, that our kids are going to find themselves into. And uh, I think there will be a backlash, I'm hoping, and people are going to strive for authenticity and real human contact. And as great yeah. as Zoom is and video conferencing and, you know, Zuckerberg's talking about the meta gates, he's implementing this into Teams, like there'll be this virtual VR conferencing. Yeah, keep keep all that shit. I'm not really yeah. interested in that. It's human connections what's important. Oh, absolutely. Not the medium. Yeah. I do think that what we might be experiencing right now is kind of a pit stop between major epochs mm-hmm. and the, the connectivity of the internet has been essential in, in kind of getting everybody synchronized on the same program. Before the internet, you could not even dream of doing that. Mm-hmm. Getting everybody synchronized that, okay, this is what the world's going to become. And depending on how dark or light you want to take this, uh, it can go either direction. You know, it, it can be that uh, we become the slave class <laughs> yeah. or it, it could be that we we enter something just amazing that is totally unlike anything else we've experienced in human history. I like I prefer that one. I think we should yeah, end on that I, I positive like that note. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The breaker of chains. It's going to unshackle us and uh, we can go into this new epoch with optimism and and uh, try and take advantage of all these all these positive effects that technology can give us. And we'll leave Ray Kurzweil and the singularity and all that stuff to one side and try not to worry about it. <laughs> Just a historical footnote, a crazy idea. That yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. Well, we could go on, as I said, we could go on for hours. We could talk about... Um, uh, yeah, the singularity and uh, AI and all that. But we've got to uh, get on with our lives. So, Well, I'll... if you ever need another filler episode, you can invite me again. Absolutely. We should definitely do this again. I've really enjoyed talking to you. and uh, Likewise. We can talk sci-fi and AI all night, I guess. Yeah. Maybe music sometime. Yeah, yeah. Do you play? Uh, I used to whenever I was a kid, before I got into the sciences, but mostly listen now. And yeah. uh, I, I'm a metalhead. Oh, yeah. Wow. Uh, what so are we talking Megadeth, Metallica, or harder? That's old. That's old school stuff, uh, which I did do whenever I was younger. Uh, but now it's like Swedish dark metal stuff. Yeah, gore. <laughs> a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Those guys are nuts. <laughs> I like the costumes. 
Yeah, Slipknot was my big thing in the 2000s, yeah. and I, I've moved on to, you know, like Cannibal Corpse and, and other groups like that. Cool. Right. Well, you heard it there, eavesdroppers. Links to content safe in the show notes if you want to follow up on Matt's stuff. Um, it's been a pleasure, as I said, Matt. Um, I'll play us out now, and um, let's hang on the line for one minute, and uh, we'll catch you guys next week with another podcast. So uh, look after yourselves and each other. <laughs> Throughout. <laughs>